Hello everyone. Thanks for joining us and uh, giving us your precious time. Peter and I are very privileged to welcome our next guest, Dr. Rob Arnfield. He's an intensivist traumatologist out in London, Ontario, not the UK. He's the medical director of the London Health Sciences Centre's Critical Care Trauma Centre. He's, of course, the director of the Critical Care Ultrasound Program at uh, Western University. He's a founding member of the National Board of Echocardiography's exam and certification on critical care echocardiography. And as somebody who has recently written that exam, thank you very much from, from me. Overall, really one of Canada's leaders in point of care ultrasound, if not the leader. And of course, recently expanded his work to include um, AI, essentially where artificial intelligence and ultrasound meet um, with his research project called Project Deep Breathe. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks uh, to you, Leon, and uh, as well, Peter, for having me. So I'll just jump straight in. Tell us about Project Deep Breathe. Uh, Project Deep Breathe is a uh, AI computer vision collaboration with point of care ultrasound focused on, to use an overused term, the democratization of lung ultrasound uh, by allowing computer vision and AI to uh, replicate or in some cases exceed human cognition for interpreting uh, lung ultrasound findings. So that's the, that's the back of the envelope or elevator kind of description. And um, I turn it back to you to which, which of those uh, multifaceted elements you'd like to unpack as it relates to the project that would be of most interest to your listeners. Well, um, let's start with some of the previous work that you've done, uh, being interpandemic now, as I've recently heard it being described. Uh, you guys did some work on COVID and um, AI. Yeah, that was the, the pilot project that really lit the fuse on the whole thing. It, uh, you could think of it as like the demo tape of our band. Uh, you know, we're, we're a big ultrasound program here in London, and I've sort of been developing some, some interest in AI, sort of circling back to some computer science uh, minoring I did at university like 20 years earlier. I thought, oh, I'm going to pick up the almost like all of the pandemic things, picking up the guitar that was sitting in your closet or, you yeah. know, the sourdough bread that you once, you know, the, were determined mm -hmm. to bake. So, you know, the AI thing kind of germinated from that same sort of visceral need and found um, a great partnership in, in engineering, uh, in particular one engineer named Blake Van Berlo. Uh, he and I kind of conspired to uh, do something COVID related. And, you know, we, we were able to uncover that, you know, using neural networks that COVID, which for the ultrasound oriented folks, of course, would know that it appears with this irregular plural line on long ultrasound, the beeline pattern, blah, blah, blah. But that, you know, that's largely indistinguishable from other causes of the same pattern, such as inflammatory uh, lung disease or other bacterial or viral causes of pneumonia. Um, however, we knew that uh, remotely the Google AlphaGo group had um, and DeepMind had proven that when you looked at retinal images, um, you could somehow actually batch them accurately using AI into biological sex. So that that you know no ophthalmologist in the world could ever do this, but that the AI could accurately sort eyeballs into male or female um, constructs, and so. You know, this inspired this notion of um, superhuman vision or um, almost, uh, you know, in a field called radiomics, which basically says like pixels carry some data that our brains cannot digest. 
and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a digital QR code basically that's embedded somehow in these images that the AI can recognize patterns that we cannot. And so this early work um, I think was was largely based on on that idea: is could there be a pattern in the long ultrasound images that simply human clinicians like you and I, Leon, who are well trained in ultrasound, to say nothing, of course, of Peter's ultrasound training, um, <laughs> and and where we wouldn't be able to distinguish between COVID pneumonia versus say MRSA pneumonia. Um, however, the first the neural network had a developed a, you know a, a sense of how to do this and was was flawless at distinguishing between appearance of lung ultrasound that that clinicians could not separate it did perfectly in terms of COVID versus non-COVID causes of pneumonia and so that was kind of an early win for us we were shocked and I'm sure in the retrospectoscope some methodologic limitations to that work um, including that it was invalidated on external data but the science otherwise was sound and that really sort of shone a light on on this notion of um, of lung ultrasound focused AI because um, admittedly imaging in AI wasn't new even in 2020 or 2021 but lung ultrasound is one of those scarcer imaging modalities where you know there aren't institutional data sets that you could just you know download uh, a million chest x-rays or a million echocardiography frames and you may know from your own personal experience, Leon, that you know archiving lung ultrasounds and and annotating them is not commonly done, even especially mm -hmm. in point of care environments. And whereas our program had a, a rich source of that data to work with, and so we begun our steady march toward um, toward uh, building out a repository and a set of AI models that could kind of replicate the entire human cognitive process as it relates to lung ultrasound. That's brilliant. Um, so. By the sounds of it, this hasn't yet translated into a COVID scanner that we just have in our hands that says yes or no. So that kind of precision diagnosis is it, it's it's kind of funny because we started. It felt like we kind of started with the chess game of AI. Like we went for kind of like a big, high level, sort of almost futuristic, uh, even aspirational scientific uh, approach, saying like. Precision diagnosis with ultrasound ultimately is what you're describing, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, after doing that, we kind of took a step back and said, okay, we kind of have to build the checkers game before we start building the chess game or walk before we run kind of approach. And so mm -hmm. um, we believe strongly there there will be a, a way to maybe not COVID specifically, maybe that signal is viral versus bacterial, maybe that signal mm -hmm. is um, the, the granularity of the distinctions are not there, but the idea that um, portable imaging could serve as a surrogate for for some degree of, of specificity um, as it relates to microbiological findings or other specific disease processes is certainly where we'd like to go with this work um, once we build out kind of the suite of uh, again, sort of the checkers level classifiers, which are no are no small feat to pull off, um, but they, they just aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily as, as futuristic as the idea of precision diagnosis through an ultrasound probe. Um, so that, you know, allows us to take one step back further. And I know that you guys did some work on, on lung pattern recognition as well, uh, using AI, the uh, typical A line pattern, B line pattern. And, and those, those terms would be familiar to some of our listeners who are trained in, in ultrasound. And, uh, I'm, I'm, Peter's shaking his head. Um, in <laughs> no, no, I, I fell, I fell asleep. Sorry, Leo. <laughs> so Rob, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, I will. And, and I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because yeah, A lines and B lines, I mean, ultimately I can teach my children to recognize the difference between A lines and B lines quite readily. And so many people would sort of scoff at the need for an AIification of, of fairly rudimentary vertical versus horizontal mm -hmm. lines. 
And at the same time, there's a real distinction between recognizing the difference between an A line and a B line and confidently interpreting it as such. The same way that ECGs with obvious ST elevation, mm. you know, are shown in medical school and the M1s cockily, you know, announced that they would send the patient immediately to the cath lab. But reality, you know, we know that there's struggle with decision making as it relates to these findings, uh, even in the wild. And so, um, you know, ultimately we see that the uh, routine dependable accuracy of an AI that can be your co-pilot, recognizing these findings accurately gives you the decision support, not unlike a GPS um, that you might use, even though you know where you're going. I often use this analogy. We still kind of like don't mind having our nav on in the car, even though we know the route we're taking. And 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 so there's an undeniable appeal there uh, for the trained physician or even the learning physician, and certainly a complete transformative opportunity if you imagine that AI being used by non-standard mm-hmm. point of care users, such as nurses, respiratory therapists, pre-hospital care providers, um, and and the list goes on, where you can skip mm-hmm. training entirely. Um, and, and that's certainly where we'd like to go with this technology. Right. And to me, that's one of the exciting parts is having a remote user of this with, with some AI backup. Um, what about some of your current projects? I know there's some stuff going on with uh, lung sliding, effusion versus consolidation. Um, and then I guess the, the Humdinger, the big one, uh, using WaveBase. Yeah, so we've obviously read the corpus of our recent publications, and I appreciate the, the loyal fan support. Um, <laughs> The uh, yeah the the lung sliding piece is really exciting because again the the power of lung ultrasound if you for those who are familiar with it is that it when it's normal it is like stone normal a lung sliding is the equivalent of you know William Osler and and Renee Lennox you know agreeing that there were breath sounds present with a hundred percent certainty you know if you're a medical history purist it's just it's so true that there's no pneumothorax when there's lung sliding present. And the power of that definitive rule out in terms of human factors, cognitive unloading, those of us who use these techniques understand how the, the temperature changes and the, the decision trees change in the trauma bay. As soon as you the intern shouts out lung sliding bilaterally, like, okay, like I've moved past the boogeyman of the pneumothorax that could be causing the shock state. And so we really are excited about asserting, using lung ultrasound AI to assert the normal case. A-lines with lung sliding is a CT equivalent of normal lung parenchyma, that the ability to assert that is way more interesting in many ways than saying there's some B-lines. Because when I say there's B-lines, all it does is there's like seven follow-up questions. Well, are they, where are they? Unilateral, bilateral, thick pleural line, thin pleural line, could be CHF, could be whatever. It, it, it's, it's like the, the home pregnancy test. A negative home pregnancy test, you're done. A positive home pregnancy test, depending especially how you arrive at being in a position to be home, doing home pregnancy tests, means you have a lot of questions. How far along am I? Are there twins? Maybe triplets? Whose baby is it? Um, you know, these are these are questions that... that Rob, so Rob we, if I could we, just interrupt and ask you to keep this on the professional level rather than discuss your personal <laughs> issues. Of course, of course. But the, the point being that the, neg- the rule out, uh, the ability to assert the normal class is both desirable and uh, heuristically, it's the most accurate that lung ultrasound can be in terms of its precision. And it's the most likely we are to accept, and we can get into this, I think, and I'd like your opinion on this, I think we're more likely as clinicians to accept an AI that tells us the normal state than we are the abnormal state. Because you know what, the abnormal state, that's my job. And we, I think, have a a dry run on this or a dress rehearsal on this from ECG analysis, where 
you know, you might be handed an ECG that's read normal sinus rhythm and you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and you're more likely to say, of course, it's normal sinus rhythm. But when the ECG says star, 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 acute MI, star, 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 you're like, let me have a look at this. You know, and, and you're like, I'll be the judge of that. And, and, and the truth is, for obvious reasons, because of the implications, if it's true, um, and also because you know, the, the, these systems are designed to be a little bit oversensitive towards pathologies to avoid false negatives. Um, and so all those reasons mean that I think uh, focusing as we are uh, in the way we develop these models, the way we tune these AI models to really tilt towards giving people confidence that when the ultrasound and the AI say the lung is normal, that they can just move on. And uh, so we're really excited about that work, uh, mm -hmm. whether it relates to pleural fusion, lung sliding, all the things that you mentioned. Um, and so we're focused very much on, on bringing that to the masses as we're able to. Mm -hmm. And and what about using wave-based AI in, in ICU? So the wave-based is a, is, a, is a portable GPU device made by a company in Waterloo and uh, ultimately allows us to platform our AI models and give it a give it a place for it to live and actually do real-time perspective validation, which is a real missing link in AI research, um, particularly in the uh, you know ICU environment where that kind of portability is required, unlike a radiology environment where obviously the c computers and, and, and servers are, are not uncommon. So yeah, WaveBase is kind of the first in class of a, a, a device that acknowledges there's AI developers like us out there who need to be able to platform their tools to give themselves the confidence that it doesn't just work on a silicon chip. It works as well when it's when it meets a real-time uh, generated image. And so we're validating, we validated our A versus B line classifier in the ICU. That was recently published. And then we, uh, we're doing that with lung sliding right now as well, that it can distinguish the pneumothorax or potential pneumothorax versus the non-pneumothorax condition. No, thanks for clarifying that. I think I think I've uh, I've met all the nerdy requirements for this episode. Um, why don't we steer towards innovation in medicine as a broader topic, uh, Peter? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to uh, get between this grizzly and her cub talking about uh, ultrasound here, guys. It's been a great conversation, and ultrasound is an incredibly important thing for all of us. And it's it's fascinating to have people such as yourself, Rob, such as Brian, such as Haley, and and, and there's a lot of leadership within Canada at the the bleeding end of this topic, and all of us are sort of gradually getting on board. I mean, I'm increasingly perplexed as to why we do chest X-rays post central lines at all. Uh, but but let's talk about medical innovation in a broader sense. You know, Leon sounded like a sort of South African Barry White as he dropped his voice in Octave and you talked more and more about ultrasound. Let's talk about the broader topic, not just ultrasound, but me, myself, and AI. You know, are we reaching an in-machines-we-trust future? Where are we going? What are the pitfalls? What are the opportunities? Go. I mean, that's a, that's a yeah, I, I think ultimately AI, we have to break that down into which domains of AI, which is a, a, an overused and, 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 and I'm sure uh, strategically imprecise uh, term you've dropped because um, that can go in a number of areas. There'd be a lot of people doing AI research that um, are related to uh, EMR, early warning systems, for instance, are sort of our classic introduction, which um, I don't think have yet materialized. I mean, ultimately, it creates a lot of noise and a lot of work for a lot of people is, is the often the frontline concerns with the early warning systems. Um, certainly, uh, that's a different type of AI than what we're working on, which is more of that computer vision side of AI. The natural language processing side of AI, which is really exciting right now, obviously, with the large language models like ChatGPT and how that's going to revolutionize not just the, how we conduct any form of uh, authorship within medicine, 
such as surgical notes or uh, progress reports, but also the academic sides of medicine, such as writing reference letters or grant writing or grant reviewing. Um, so those uh, research jobs that are predicated on uh, days or weeks of office time uh, to maintain research productivity um, are certainly looking, it's unclear where that's going to go and how the funding of those positions is going to change in the advent of something that does a lot of the writing for you. Um, and then, uh, and then you have, you know, the, the, can you integrate all these things together in some sort of generalized solution that takes in, you know, ambient uh, dialogue like voice assistance, along with then the text, and then along with the computer vision side and some integrated EICU type model. Um, we could all fantasize about which elements we would would prioritize in that environment. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think those are all just the talking points that we could would maybe launch off of and, and are all germane to the practice of critical care. Um, I don't know if there's any one of those uh, that, that strikes you guys as the most interesting to dive into first. Well, I think we need to dedicate at least an episode to chat GPT and its immense mm-hmm. uh, scares and opportunities. And friends of mine in education are terrified about it. Friends of mine in research are excited, but similarly terrified about it. So mm-hmm. I think that deserves its own half hour block. How about the, and, and if anyone hasn't read about chat GPT, there may be one or two people, get on board uh, because it has immense implications. But let's talk about innovation within medicine, Rob. I mean, how do you carve out time? How do you authorize yourself? How do you explore that rather than just the traditional world of write a grant application 18% 18% of the time get it funded because you've gone in a slightly different direction not not so much commercial but a, a, but an academic slash commercial slash curiosity direction and I think that would appeal to a lot of people who don't want to just write grants or go the traditional academic route. Yeah I think my personal playbook around this Peter is um, largely helped by you know and, and this is going to be the world's maybe worst or best kept secret that the lifestyle of an intensive care physician is is a lot like a firefighter's uh, lifestyle and if you look at most firefighters you know in canada they often have quite active hobby lives where they use their downtime effectively uh, they work hard and are immersed completely when they're at work but when they're not at work there is a recovery period where you can mobilize i think uh, the other parts of your brain to be become activated and 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 so for me innovation has been important in and keeping me healthy and keeping me curious as you say and now when you think of canadian healthcare and you say the word innovation those two words don't always kind of go together or large complex systems such as hospitals and innovation in general not to be dismissive of, of the canadian environment those things don't necessarily go they're not agile systems sometimes what i've found is that uh, is to not become so hung up on the hospital needing to pay for what I'm doing or a grant to support what I'm doing is to maybe fund things myself for the first 5% of it to get off the ground to be able to take a sniff to see if what I'm doing is worthwhile. So that first COVID project I did, I bought a computer with a big GPU. I didn't get a grant for it, but I bought it myself because what am I going to do? Wait around and not light the fuse on something that interesting? Of course not. And so I would just say that, you know, if we can get out of our own way in terms of just, you know, what do I actually want to do and say, is this worth spending my own money on? And that helps then just turn over a couple more cards that prove whether or not it's worthwhile maybe then applying for a grant or building or getting other people to help fund what you're doing. So I would say that's one of the biggest um, barriers that I see people get in the way of is, is just that staking themselves in their own curiosity that goes outside of the traditional silos of academia or, or the healthcare system in Canada. 
I think you bring up a very interesting point, though, because a lot of us are feral, creative, in need of an outlet, uh, which, which incorporates a lot of what the job is about, helping people out, having not flight of ideas, but many broad interests. Uh, and so far, what most of us have known is you can teach, you can research, or you can do clinical work. And this is different. And it's, I found it fascinating as so I go across the country, the people who do have very intriguing projects that have one foot in medicine, but one foot firmly outside. Dan Howes in Kingston, Hussein Kanji in Vancouver, yourself in London, Chris Hicks in Toronto. The list goes on and on and on. How do we build that culture? I mean, Rob, you and I got to know each other around a discussion of sabbaticals and almost whether it was okay to take time away from the mothership. And, and this seems like a similar project. Now, we're a long way away from ultrasound now, and I apologize. I think half the audience here wants factual, what do I do with an ultrasound? I think half the audience wants, you know, how do I stay engaged in this fascinating slash frustrating profession? Of yeah, it's so well put. I mean, I think ultrasound is a placeholder. Ultrasound is the chat GPT of today. Ultrasound was that thing 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and remains obviously extremely relevant in the long tail of adoption and uh, refinement of how we use it. Um, and it, it's, it ultimately, it's united a lot of the innovators that you've mentioned in Canada, who I think if it wasn't ultrasound there, it would be, you know, it would be VR or, you know, Brian, I know Buchanan's getting into that kind of stuff. It, it's ultimately, you know, it, it's a, it's the water cooler around which in many ways, the, the clinician innovators like to hang out. And, you know, some of us get a bad rap or sort of get pigeonholed for our, our common uh, archetypal personality, uh, traits with the ultrasound kind of bros or Sisses, is that a word? And that mentality. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, the sabbatical piece that you raised, Peter, and I want to, again, obviously, thank you for your guidance there. I mean, taking a pause, taking a pay cut to take a pause to be able to just, you know, recharge your batteries and, and to not even know what you're going to do with that and to be just to trust that, look, if you're a mid-career physician and you have generally never kind of flunked at anything in the past, what are the odds if you took three months off that you're going to turn into a degenerate gambler, video game addicted, morbidly obese, uh, philandering, you know, terrible, you know, uh, you know, moral character? You're, you're going to be again, again, Rob, if I can interject, I've asked you once already just to keep this professional rather than personal, but do carry on. Appreciate that, Peter. The, <laughs> the, the confidence that, that open-ended time where it's not every moment needs to be planned for and quite intentionally you might need to hit a point of boredom which would be rare for most of the physicians listening to this um, to then allow uh, the shower thoughts to kind of creep in that, that then can kind of actually become your next act and and I think it's a it's paradoxical of course because it's actually working less hard uh, creates that creative uh, permission and that space for those things to breathe, which I think many of us, both in medicine and outside of medicine, defer in our mind to somehow this mythical concept of retirement being your sabbatical when you're older, less likely to be creative, more conservative in your values, and that makes little sense. And so I would argue that three months or six months today, rather than a six month earlier retirement, you know, is eminently um, desirable for anyone who kind of needs to shake things up. 
and 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 stake themselves, like I said, with your time and with your money um, to do that. And personally, for me, in addition to some time away, that was taking a reduction in clinical volume, which I wasn't terribly clinically busy, but I reduced it even further because I knew that the the, the great interesting paths were were not more clinical. It was it was going to be something in the unknown. And I mean, I just want to point shine a light on you guys. I mean, look at what you're doing. Like this is obviously not a grant funded project. This is clearly a hobby level interest you guys have adopted this technology you're, you're addressing obviously unmet need in terms of you know a, a more specific podcast to the intensive care community i mean i really want to congratulate you and say the very thing you're talking about is exactly what you're doing isn't it well i think that's that's very generous and and and, and perhaps it's that unconscious creativity where you just let your mind go where it wants to go i don't know that we set out with any grand plan on a podcast other than just to chat meet interesting people and explore whatever came to our mind and i think that's where these two projects come together is just giving yourself the freedom and the creativity but building that into your life you know i was i was taught divide your career up into learning earning and returning but instead of those being separate thirds we're probably better off popping them together. We have a podcast with Mark Wilson where he talks about micro-volunteering because people don't have large tracts of time to dedicate. And I wonder if micro-creativity, is, is, as nauseating as that neologism probably sounds, but for example, is there room in a conference to have a dragon's den where people come with their crazy idea? I organized a dangerous ideas festival one time. It sort of worked, it sort of didn't. I, I just think if we leave people with anything, it's a sense of, yes, you can, and sort of, you know, the difference between whether you can and you can't is belief that you can or you can't. And so we're going to wrap this up. But on a personal level, Rob, we started talking about ultrasound. You've done amazing work in that regard. But what you've also contributed to our specialty is a, a sort of yes, you can sense and a, a, a sense of the creativity matters and that extra 10% of your personality matters and isn't something you hide away. I think you've made a very good point too, and let's talk about retirement on a future podcast, that leaving that as some mythical land where you do all the things that you wanted to do is, uh, if you've learned anything at the ICU bedside, you may not have that mythical time, and equally, you may not be as creative and fertile while you get there because you're just so darn beaten up. Leon, finish this on a high positive ultrasound related <laughs> coda there's no other way uh first of all rob thank you so much for carving out time for us um thank you for the kind words um this has been a, a project that we have worked on fairly hard and and as you alluded to there's there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that uh, takes work that takes learning and it's it's certainly been um it's been an adventure. It's it's really awesome to meet wonderful people like yourself. You know, I'm I'm looking forward to a time when my my little girls, if they if they so wish, become doctors and they they walk around with a Star Trek esque scanner that just simply scans the patient from head to toe. Um, I, I think it's it's going to be an exciting time. But thanks again for joining and us. And time in their day to phone their daddy and see how he's doing. That's right. <laughs> Thanks to you both for having me. And again, I, I just want to congratulate you both on bringing something to the community and giving back and uh, innovating in your own way. So looking forward to the next time we can chat.